It is uh, becoming a, a regular blessing to come and see you now that we are working together as a family, uh, trying to join hands as we reach out to the different people around the world. Um, I, am, uh, I am from the school of Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he told us, be ready to pray, preach, or die at a moment's notice. And uh, when I was invited to uh, preach, I was praying about it, and uh, the Lord gave me something. I, I was not aware of the topic that has just been mentioned, but I'll tell you what, I can, uh, I can do that anytime, anywhere, uh, in the midnight, uh, waking up from a dead sleep. Uh, uh, you know, the beauty for me about how we can uh, reach the world for Christ is through a New Testament Christianity, the real disease, the real thing. Howard Hendricks used to also tell us, if it doesn't work in your life, please don't export it. That, you know, I mean, the, if you think about it, you know, we really need the real disease. We really don't need imitations and so on. And the greatest thing that I have seen in my life around the world being in a lot of contexts, you know, in Indonesia, in India, in China, in Vietnam, in Switzerland, in Spain, in Romania, in Ukraine, in Latin America, etc., mingling with Christians and seeing all types of Christianity and how they interpret Christianity. The greatest version that I have seen is with the Cuban brethren. No kidding. They are the people with the least resources that I know on earth. And they are by far and away the most explosive, the most evangelistic, the most productive, the most New Testament-like. They have a DNA that accounts for how they interpret Christianity. They believe if you have been born again and you are not bearing fruit, you're sick. That's weird. <laughs> They believe that if your church is a church and is not producing daughter churches, it is like a barren woman in the Old Testament who could have no children. That is radical. Whoever heard of such a thing? And they, you know, once they become a church and incorporate, they already have their mission points where they are going to put out their shoots and they begin to grow. And it is just an amazing blessing a wonderful interpretation of a New Testament Christianity and at the same time a strategy of how we are going to reach out our world for Christ. I try to go anywhere and everywhere that I go and I tell the Chinese how they're doing it in Cuba. And I tell the people in Ukraine how they're doing it in Cuba. And I tell the people in Spain how they're doing it in Cuba. And I tell the people if I go to India how they're doing it in Cuba, because these guys are isolated, as you've noticed in the map. They're totally isolated. There's water all around them, and they haven't gotten too many memos from too many other types of Christianity. The only recipe they have is in the Bible. And they are living it, and to me, it's just a tremendous blessing to see how these things are working out in their lives and in their in their evangelization and so on. There are people, now I was just being reminded by a pastor uh, that I was with a couple of days ago, 
uh, as he was sharing with a group, we were having dinner. He said, you know, I don't know if many will remember this, but, uh, you know, a lady got up and she said she was grateful uh, to be there. She had missed the, the family of the church the last week and uh, that the reason is that the river was up to her neck uh, because of the rains, so she couldn't afford it to come to church. But this time, it was only coming up to her chest, so he had been able to make it. She wasn't putting anybody on. And everybody was just happy for her that the river had gone down a little bit. Some people are walking down the mountain for four hours so that they can go to church on Sunday. And those are the stories we used to hear many years ago while well, it's still going on in Cuba. It is an amazing thing. We were with a group of guys just recently, about three weeks ago, and I was going to go up and baptize about 70 people in the mountains, in, uh, you know, beyond 7,500 feet. And we were supposed to take a team of mules to go up there with us. We got there at 8 p.m., and we started riding, and we were going to ride seven hours <laughs> to be able to get to the places where the services were going to start. No big deal. It's just what we agreed to do. We're going to baptize them. The time, no problem. The great fortune, we've got mules. We used to have to do it on foot. Now it only takes seven hours. I am not kidding. It is not an exaggeration. That is how they're living it. Remember Norma, the lady with the flashlight, <laughs> and just how with one flashlight, she felt she could reach out nine villages. That's all she needed when Mr. Harrison from Coca-Cola was offering her a car or a motorcycle. All she could think of is a flashlight. You give me a flashlight, I get this done. And we have come face to face with the mirror of that illustration. You know, do you have a flashlight? Do you have a car? California must be safe. Remember this. This is something about the strategies in reaching out uh, to our world. And yet, you know, the, the thing as I focus on it also has to do with Cuba. You know, when I think about how we can live a victorious Christian witness in the face of adversity, that is the thing that God had laid on my heart for a morning as today. And I wanted to do a comparison of the life of Joseph as a model for victory in adversity and the life of Jorge, a Cuban pastor, who is living with adversity to the nth degree. You know, if you remember, Joseph was the dreamer. And there's nothing wrong with dreams, especially when they're wonderful dreams, dreams of a preferred, wonderful future. And Joseph was like that. He had the dream of doing something great because God is the one that gave him those dreams. And he shared those dreams because God gave them to him to share. Now, vision is many wonderful things. Vision is the articulation of a preferred future. Vision is the conjugation of your deepest values projected to that golden future. Vision is a vision of greatness that captures the imagination and will transport you into that future. Vision is the essential act of leadership. But there's also a couple of negatives, huge, that come with vision. Vision is a tacit 
statement of discontent with things as they are. When you articulate a vision in a wordless way, you're saying, I don't really think that we're doing this thing right. And that draws the ire of <laughs> the, the team players around you. Now, vision is a violation of patriarchal contracts. How about it? Joseph was just sharing what God told him. It's like David, when David was sharing, hey, listen, is it true that all we have to do is knock the giant and we're tax-free for our family and everything is going to be wonderful? We're going to be uh, exempt from, you know, having to pay anything to the government, etc. And we're going to get all these blessings from the government. And the brothers rebuke him. And his older brother says, you are so conceited. Isn't that what the brothers told Joseph? They said, this is a dreamer. This guy thinks he's going to be bigger than us, better than us. He thinks he's better than we are, etc., etc. And all that Joseph was doing is he was entrusted with a vision and he was making it known. It is the only way we would know that God is the one that told him way in advance what he wanted from his life. And he was just being faithful. He was just doing what he was told to do. What I want you to notice in this, my brothers and sisters, is that managing conflict is going to have to be one of the skills of every one of us for a victorious Christian life, for a victorious enactment of the commission that God gives you wherever you are, whether it's with your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, wherever, there will be conflict because the world does not recognize us because they did not recognize him either. And whether you are in the workplace and people are making life miserable for you or it's not okay for you to share your witness or this or that, you know, you will have conflict. Joseph had conflict and he was only doing what God told him to do. Now, we have a, a friend, this pastor, Jorge. He started with us 12 years ago. He has no he has no, uh, um, no dreams of his own. He had nobody that he knew. He just began to be faithful. And the Lord began to grow a church around him. Today, Jorge has 2,000 members and 300 daughter churches in Cuba, in Artemisa. And we are helping him to put together this little institute where he trains his pastors and he had given up his house and gave it for, for the training center. And he has been sleeping on the floor of his in-laws with his wife and his four kids. And that's how he lives his Christianity. Have you read the book Radical? If you knew Jorge, you know that the book Radical is too lame. Jorge is living it to the, to the fullest. And I, I'm not kidding. Not only has he been doing these things, and he's been doing really well just expressing what God gave him to do, but he has people that are after him and have tried to make life very, very difficult for him. I will explain as we go just how difficult things can get. But the whole point is as we back up into the study, and I realize we're, we're summarizing, if we really get bogged down in the verse by verse, we would lose it. We, we're not going to be able to do it justice, but, you know, I am in Genesis 37, summarizing big portions of the scriptures in the life of Joseph, 
And the part that I just talked to you about is in 37.1 about Joseph's dreams. And it says how Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilha and the sons of Tzilpa, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Now Israel, verse 3, loved Joseph more than any of the other sons, his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And this goes on. And Joseph has a dream. And in the dream, he sees his brothers bowing to him as it were. And in a farther dream, he sees his brothers and even father and mother bowing to him. And he says, in so many words, you know, I don't know what to make of this, but this is what I saw in the dream. And he's not saying... I'm going to be bigger than you are. I mean, I'll, some people do interpret it that way, but I'm, I'm sure because of the development of the story, Joseph had not that attitude about him. And he is just, just doing what God showed him to do. And, you know, this is Jorge for me also. And the idea is that every one of us would have a disposition to catch God's word of revelation to us and to latch onto it and never, never, never let it go. Come what may. The idea would be revolutionary. How would we reach our will for Christ with that attitude? My goodness. If we took God at his word and lived out for him exactly how he wants, to, he wants us to live out for him, I think the world would be revolutionized even if it had just Valley Bible Church as the church. In the world, it is impressive what God can do as we really turn our life to Him and say, You know, I am willing to do it and to just trust you, even if nobody comes along. That's hard to do, but I am amazed how many Cubans are doing this. <laughs> it is catchy, it is challenging me every, every time that I'm around them, and it is it's a delight to call them my friends. You know, I have been with people who have told me how their friends were this and were that, and they were going to a seminary, and at the seminary, you know, somebody was uh, making passes at his wife and, uh, from the administration, and, and uh, you know, and he was a student who was a musician, so he was popular, and some of the female students were making passes at him in, in overt invitations, you know, to sleep with him, etc. and I'm thinking... What kind of a seminary was this? I mean, I, I don't even want to know. I don't, I don't even want to find out. And he said, but you don't know. No, after all, it turned out good because we all became very good friends. And even to this day, we write to each other and this and that. I had so much of that conversation. I said, let me tell you about my friends. <laughs> I have a friend that gets up every morning and is selling ice cream through the morning and planting three churches every afternoon in three different villages. I have a friend with a death threat in his life because things are going so well. And he is faithful. And he is committed, even if he kills me, I want to die in his will. That's my friend. I am proud to call him my friend, and God is not ashamed to be their God. I want to hang with them. <laughs> I have told my wife, if I die in Cuba, don't bring my body back. I want to I be buried there. 
It will be my honor. And I don't know how it hits you, my brother and sister, but if we are going to be everything that Christ commissioned us to be, we need to sell out to Christ like we have never thought of doing before. It is going to be important that we live it like the Cubans are living it. That we respond in a way that it can be desperately shown to a desperately needy world. You know, I, I'm telling you about Jorge. You know, I see him a lot like Joseph, ministering in adversity and yet able to trust the Lord who entrusted a vision to him. And I think if we trust the Lord as he has entrusted a vision to us, the work is going to get done. And eternity will be the richer because of that. But it's got to come out of the way that it's being handled in so many cases, you know. We had a team that led over 200 people to Christ just three weeks ago, just in the one week, five days. And a team after that, another 200 plus to Christ. And two following teams, two other weeks. And within a very short amount of time, we have about 1,000 people that have come to Christ, have received Him as their Savior. They are not going to hell anymore. Now they're going to be on their way to heaven. And a lady was sharing two or three nights ago in this kind of a closure meeting. Well, you know, even though we didn't do something tangible while we were there, I still walked away with a blessing. It blessed me that the people were so smiley and so happy whenever I came around them. That's the blessing. That's my takeaway. And other people were com uh, uh, commenting, what blessed me was X, and what blessed me was Y, and what blessed me was this and that and so on. And some of them, you know, the lady in particular was disappointed we didn't build a wall. If we had built a wall, something that we could say, you know, there, we did it. You know, that, that would have been really, really great. And then I talked to them about something that is shown us in Luke chapter 15. There was a shepherd who lost one sheep, and he was frantic to find that sheep. And when he found it, there was rejoicing because he had the one sheep, even though he had 99 safely in the fold. It was the one that was lost that he was rejoicing about. And there was a wife that lost her wedding band, as it were. And she searched throughout the house frantically. And when she found it, she invited her neighbors. And they had a party because what she had lost was found. But greater than the sheep and greater than the wedding band, there was a father who had a son. And he was frantic until he could find him. And when he found him, he threw a feast. And even though his religious son, other son, didn't understand it, the father explained to him, this is the value system. Your brother was dead, and now he is alive. And our takeaway is hundreds of souls that are not going to hell anymore. And that should be the driving force within us, the motivation. And if that's the fire that drives us, the love of Christ compels us. Then we can change and we can reach our world for Christ. We are God's redemptive agency declared by the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us is a God redemptive agent. 
assets that he has throughout the community, throughout society, that can reach their world for Christ if the salt hasn't lost its saltiness. And my brothers and sisters, as I speak to you these things, this is not my idea. This is not my initiative. This is not something I think we ought to do. It is God who wants to say that to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he has said it, and he has men like Joseph who said, this is my father's will, and I'm going to trust him and follow him, even if it kills me. And there's Jorge saying, this is my father's will, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to do it, even if it kills me. Therefore, God entrusted him with a vision, entrusted them with a vision, entrusted us with a vision, with a dream of what could be if we will yield in obedience to him. And beyond that, God entrusts him with a household. Remember in, the, in chapter 39 where he goes as a slave into Potiphar's uh, house, and there he goes about diligently doing whatever they give him to do. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of good uh, principles, good conscience. He works hard. He's looking out for the master's goodness, and the Lord blesses the master in every way, uh, but there's a problem. Some people have interpreted this as the case of a Hebrew hunk. You know, he was really good looking. <laughs> he was really great, and they said this is the case of a Hebrew hunk and a, an Egyptian desperate housewife. And you know how the story goes. She wants to sleep with him. He will not do that because he doesn't want to sin against his master and sin against his God, more importantly. And she will set it up so that if he's not going to do this, she's going to accuse him and throw him in jail. And so they throw him in jail. And, you know, this second episode of the story of Joseph it's one where I think it would be really an amazing thing for us to, <laughs> to assimilate, um, said in a better way. That is showing an incredible character in Joseph that is something that should be inspiring to us. This is a guy who didn't just almost, almost get sold into slavery. Nope, he was sold into slavery. And he didn't just almost, almost get thrown in jail. He was thrown into jail. Good thing he had the Psalms to read while he was in jail. No Psalms. <laughs> no Genesis. <laughs> he was just following God as his father had taught him. His father Jacob. And yet he knew God said, and I'm going to hang on to his word, and I'm not going to let go, even if it kills me. And he was thrown into jail. And he had the temptation, I'm sure, to be bitter. Look, God gives me a dream. I share the dream. I get hatred. I get, you know, almost killed, sold into slavery, this and that. God puts me in a house. I want to be the nice guy. I want to do the things right. I want to do this. And what do I get? Thrown into jail. Man, <laughs> this is not a very good record about this faithful God. Do you see how sometimes when we are, in a crucible, we have the temptation to get bitter. God, you're supposed to bless me. This is not supposed to be like this. I should have certain things. I am entitled. 
And that attitude of entitlement can make us grow cold towards God and give it up. And a lot of people have given up. A lot of people have given up. But these guys, like Joseph and like Jorge, to me, are tremendous examples of how to hang on to your God and to his word and trust him even when people want to do bad things to you. You know, he was confronted by an official in Cuba, Jorge. He told him, I can shut down your work. And Jorge said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. But what's being defined right now is what you're going to do with that authority. If you're going to be the evil man to misuse authority and attack me, or if you're going to use it with the God-given purpose for which it was given to you. And then, because the God will give no relief, he said something else. Romans 8, 28. He said, I want you to know that there's nothing you can do to me that will not turn out for my good. You do whatever you want. God will turn it into a blessing for me. Because God will not, will not allow anything but that will do good to us. And so even you know, if you decide I'm going to do wrong, that's going to be the right that you're going to do to me. And he left. And the man was yet to find out all that was going on in the words that Jorge was transmitting to him. The man had conflict to manage in his own life and in his own workplace. In his circles, there was an official who is in charge of security in the region. And the official is the nemesis of this other man that's trying to make life difficult for Jorge. And they had such a bad encounter one day, they ended up in a fist fight. Bad idea when you're taking on the chief of security. He had this man that is antagonizing our Jorge and threw him in jail. And after his time in jail, the official came out and he made a beeline for Jorge's place. And he said, uh, Pastor Jorge, what kept me going when I was in jail, I kept remembering your words. Nothing that our enemies will do to us will turn out for our evil or for, our, for our, something bad for us. Everything God will turn to good. So Jorge needed to explain a little bit more. There's a clause here. <laughs> it says, for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And the man said, what does that mean? I don't get in on this, on this blessing. <laughs> well, I mean, you can. But the way that it works is you have to be those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And there's no question he's called you. The question is, do you want to connect with his purpose? You know, do you want to be part of God's family by receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you are in the family of those who love Him. You are called according to His purpose and have connected with His purpose. Now, nothing that happens to you will turn out for your good, but ultimately for, for your evil, but ultimately for your good. So this man decided he better jump quickly to the side of those who love Him. And so he couldn't pray it fast enough, get me in. Praise the Lord. So he came in, even though he wanted to do wrong. And then he said, when he was in, listen, we're not safe yet, 
because I know for a fact that I set some things in motion to try to shut you down. You're vulnerable. Let's help you so that you are not vulnerable anymore. And so now the bad guy is in the team of those who love him, who are trying to work according to his purpose, telling Pastor Jorge, listen, let's get it set up in this way so that nobody can shut you down. And that's exactly what we're doing by the, by the grace of God. Well, praise the Lord. You know, Joseph was entrusted with a vision, and then he was entrusted with a household. And then when he was thrown into jail... He was entrusted with the jail. He becomes the guy that manages the jail. Why does he everywhere, you put him down, he comes right back up. He's got a buoyancy about him that is the victory of those that walk by the Spirit. That of those that walk within the purpose of God. You would put him down, he, you know, like a cork. You put it down in the water, he pops right out. Put it down again, pops right up. Put it down again. And he's in jail, and there he goes up again. You know, the, the jail co commits the whole jail to him. He's, this guy is a super administrator. I don't have to worry about a thing. It runs far better than when I've run it. You know, he, we better let him do the job. And there come the, the baker and the, and the cupbearer for the king into jail. But they, you know, get their dreams interpreted and so on. These are influential people. Please... You know, remember me to the king, to Pharaoh. Tell him, you know, I'm here and I truly look into this. I've done nothing wrong, etc., etc. And sure, thank you very much, buddy. And we're out of here. And two years go by. Forgotten. That would be the, the word over that chapter. Forgotten. But not by God. If you read when he was thrown in jail, it says, but God was in jail with Joseph. I call it the inmates. God was his inmate, his cellmate. I, I can just see the graffiti on that jail. You know, God was here. <laughs> Beautiful. Comfort. God was in jail with Joseph, and Joseph was in jail with God, and God blessed him, and he was not forgotten. God said, you were with me until your graduation day. You're getting your, not your M.A., you know, in uh, business administration, you're getting a Ph.D., and it's going to take a couple of years longer. So you're going to come out of here with your doctorate, but you've got to hang on two more years. And two years go by until the cupbearer remembers, remembers the guy that interpreted the dream because Pharaoh needs an interpretation. And Joseph comes out of there, and he lays out the whole scheme, how Egypt needs to run so he can make it through good times and bad times. And he is put in a wonderful position. My brothers and sisters, what does this have to do with us? I hope that we're tracking together. You know, conflict management is not a question of if it will happen to us. It has already happened. It may already be happening with you, and it will happen. The question is how to proactively victoriously administrated. And I'm telling you, Joseph hung on to God's word and never, never, never let it go. And when there was a temptation to get bitter, he would not get bitter. And when he would have thought, you are forgotten, he knew, I'm not forgotten because he lives with me right here in this jail. He knew how, you know, he never lost track of where his God was. 
He never lost his bearings. He was always latched on to God's will. And that is why God blessed him in such a mighty, powerful way. And I tell you, you know, this uh, friend Jorge, you would think after he's been through all that he's been through, you know, he'd be scot-free. But, but he has adversity and trouble at every step. Out of the blue, he develops a double kidney infection. Double kidney infection. And he goes to the hospital, and he is trying to run a 2,000-member church and 300-daughter church plant movement from his bed with IVs in his arms. And I showed up in town, and he, he told the doctor, I need to go talk to this man, and I'm asking only for one hour to be gone from my bed. Only one hour. I promise I'm coming back on my own foot, and I'm going to get back in bed, and you can put those IVs back into me. I just need to do this. And he convinced this guy to let him out. And the doctor let him out for one hour. And when he came out, he turned on his phone because he wondered what he has been missing. And so as he turns on his phone, he's got a recording from the man that had tried to shut him down before that now has become a believer. He has been discipled. He, he, he's being discipled by Jorge. And then there's a recording. And Jorge is with me when he hears the recording. Tears begin to go down his cheeks. And, and he's, he just shares with me what the recording is. The man is saying, my brother, I hear that you're in the hospital with a double kidney infection. And I want you to know I have two good kidneys. You can have one of mine anytime you need it. This is the guy that was really hating his guts. Now he wants to give him one of his guts. <laughs> how about that? It is exciting to see how God's transformation takes place in that faithfulness. Now, you know, you, you read about Joseph and you think, you know, well, that happened so long ago. Well, that's happening in Cuba as I'm speaking to you. And the, the, the amazing thing is there's this dogged resolution to be faithful. Joseph is entrusted with a nation. He is crowned. And furthermore, he is entrusted with an eternal legacy. An eternal legacy. What has God entrusted you and me with? Building walls that will be torn down in 100 years? Or eternal souls? You see, that I'm not making this up. And it's not my initiative. This is God's idea, says 2 Corinthians you know, 5.18. This is all from God, who when Christ was here, he was in Christ reconciling, and now he is committed to us, all of us, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is to say that God, when Christ was here, was in God, reconciling the world, not counting their, their trespasses against him, but now he has committed to us the work of reconciliation. I am not a hyper-Calvinist that says, you know, you were dragged kicking and screaming to salvation and there was nothing you could do about it, this or that. I mean, I know I have brothers who believe that and that's fine. Uh, the Lord bless them and keep them far away from me. But the thing is that, uh, you know, the one thing that I can be very dogmatic about is it says right here, we were dragged into this ministry of reconciliation. So God considers you a minister of reconciliation. He wants you involved, every hand on deck. That's how we're going to reach our world for Christ. Just so you know, missions is on the wane. In the 80s, we had 80,000 missionaries. 
But today, we have only about 40,000. And the population has grown a whole lot more since the 80s. So what does that mean? That you were excused? Absolutely not. I want to be like Elijah. Think that I'm the only one if I have to. But God will have the coalition of the willing. <laughs> the 7,000 that will not bow their need to bail. And he wants you to be part and parcel, actively involved, doing the very best. You know, I had a friend uh, in Spain named Pepe. And he was out walking his dog. And uh, he told me he was walking his dog. We're in an avenue. And I said, where's the dog? Because I could see the leash, but I didn't see the dog. And it was a chihuahua. It was hiding behind one of his legs. Not two legs, but just one. And I couldn't see it. And so I had to walk around the back of Pepe to see this beast. It looked like an overgrown rat. But he thought he was, he, he was super dog or something. And we saw that attitude when a city bus, you know, one of those flex-articulated buses in Europe, is coming right up to a stop by where Pepe was. This ferocious animal rearing up in its hind legs is going at the bus. You know, ah, he wants to eat him. <laughs> I'm thinking, you couldn't bite a chunk of a tire. You know I mean, but he thinks he can eat it because his nature <laughs> was absolutely doggy. <laughs> and you know, God has put a new nature in us that makes us to be as hungry and determined as our great God. And in God, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is exactly the attitude that God wants in us. And that's what got to push at the edges of eternity to bring all these people in, even in adversity. Jorge, my buddy that I chose to tell you about today. You know, there's a man, and I'll end with this anecdote. But Jorge was in... Uh, the East, I, I sent him and Felix, another guy that we have, to do a pruning. Pruning is good. It's in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. You are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. He cuts off branches that are non-productive, prunes those that are productive. I said, look, this is super harvest time in a super country. Nobody should be in a holding pattern. If anybody has been in a holding pattern, for six months to a year, bid him farewell, bless him with his congregation, and turn him loose. That they do whatever they feel God is calling them to do, and do it with all their heart. So we replaced 65 people throughout the team, in a team of over 500 people. So that we could put good people to work that are earning the money to feed their family by chopping grass, or selling ice cream, or cobbling shoes, or you know, doing any number of things, but they're planting three and four churches and so on. We want to give them more help, more energy, so that they can be more productive. This is God's work. So I sent him out to do that, but he met a guy that I know also in the East. He is a one tough guy. He is reputed to be the biggest criminal that the people of today have known in Cuba. And this guy is horribly tough. He has, on, in a rage, overturned a police car and taken the batons from the four policemen and beat them up, all four of them. They think he, he was demon-possessed at the time. He might have been because he did some things that were incredibly tough. He went into jail, and he was raping the other, the other inmates 
He was beating up on murderers. He, you know, everybody bowed their knee to this guy. I've sat face to face with him and interviewed him and, and talked with him at length and so on. And uh, one day, um, the police were harassing him and they put him in solitary confinement because of all the stuff that he was doing to the other inmates. And he didn't want to be there. So he threw a shoe at one of the bulbs up there and the shards fell. And he took one of the biggest shards and dropped his pants and cut off his right testicle, dangled it out the window to the police and threw it at them. I got a gift for you. So they took him in a rush to the infirmary so that, you know, he wouldn't bleed to death. And uh, so he decided he didn't want to be like that. He didn't want to be there. He did this and that. So he invented a plan to kill himself. Got up on the fifth story of a building there in the jail. I had even decided I'm not going to jump towards the, the courtyard where all the inmates are because they will... They will tear out my eyeballs the moment I fall. They're going to rape me. They're going to do all kinds of, because that's what I've been doing to them. So I'm going to jump towards the side where the police are, the fence, so they'll see me fall immediately, come and get my body before the inmates know, and uh, then I'm going to be gone. And so that's his plan. But he wanted a double, double suicide so, so that he would hang himself, and if perchance the rope broke, he would fall five stories and be killed. So, you know, he puts his rope, uh, cell-made rope around his neck. He had hooked it on something and throws, you know, uh, jumps off and uh, the thing broke and he, you know, landed five stories down and a policeman comes and with a boot lifts his face and he said, this guy is gone. And this inmate says, no, I'm not. I'm still here. So they take him and he's got a broken back and because they don't have conditions there to take care of him, they uh, release him to go to his house and just be a, 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 an inmate in his house. They figure he cannot do anything. Well, Jorge went over, and as he was visiting different people, they told him about this guy. He went and met him, and then he heard some things that were still very carnal in the man's life. So he confronted him and this and that, and that guy went into, into another rage, and thankfully he cannot do much from his, uh, from, from his chair, but... Uh, the Ministry of the Interior came to tell Jorge, you know, we want you to please let us help you to take care of you because there is a death threat on your life. And they're telling it to him in one end of the island. And this conversation had been at the other end. They said, remember when you took that trip, Ministry of the Interior knows exactly when he went, who he went with, whom he sat with, everybody he talked to, etc. And they said, you talked to this man. And this man has ordered a hit on your life. And we want to help to protect you. Jorge said, I feel like the most protected guy on the island. You have a white Lada, uh, you know, Russian car, following me everywhere I go. I, I have motorcycles, if not the, the car. I have this. I said, I am the, the guy that you m spend the most money protecting. He said, I, I know. I see you. And he said, I want you to know, I am not afraid. And even though... He should kill me. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. End of story. Brethren, you know, this is not made up stuff. And this didn't happen in a movie. <laughs> this is stuff that I get to see day in and day out. In about two weeks, we receive Jorge's daughter, who has severe scoliosis. Her, her, uh, ver her spinal cord is leaning at 64 degrees off of where it should be, and it's threatening to crush one of her lungs. 
She's 15 years old. And Shriners Hospital Dallas is giving her a $150,000 operation free. And she's coming just in two weeks, staying at our house, and they're going to do all of this for her. The Lord keeps blessing Jorge against the tide, against the winds, against the storms. This is that miraculous, heroic God that we read about in the scriptures who is alive and well and who roams throughout the earth looking for those whose heart is right towards him. And he wants you to be part of that team that will see his glory, that will see his victories, that will carry much fruit for all of eternity. Now, I have to close, but I want you to know that if you are here today and you want to be part of that team, you have an opportunity to purposefully tell them, you enrolled me in it, you saw some good in me, please help me to find that good. Please get me plugged in exactly where you want me to plug in. Help me to not sit by and wait for the will to drop out of heaven. Help me to be part of this church and to do some of the ministries of this church reaching out to the community. And if you want me to go out to the mission field, show me the way. I want to go out there. You remember Norma, the lady with the flashlight. You know, she was in Cuba doing her thing. She wouldn't take a car or a motorcycle. She wanted just a flashlight. And people asked me, did she get her flashlight? She got a flashlight. The government wouldn't let her at that time buy a motorcycle, which is the only other thing he, she could ride. So all she got was a, a flashlight. But then she got the lottery. The lottery for the Cubans is when you are, when you have requested uh, a visa to leave, once in a blue moon, somebody gets it. And Norma, the lady that was faithful with those nine villages and a flashlight, got the visa to leave. She came to Miami. The first thing she did, following always in God's footsteps, is go to a church. Norma was 40, 41 years old. And there in the church, wouldn't you know it, was a, a single man, had never been married, 40-some years old. And he falls in love with Norma. And they get married. And now Norma has a house, and they have a car, and she's got flashlights. And that's not all. She immediately joined the, the committee, the missions committee in her church here in Miami. And they discovered this lady is very passionate about evangelism, planting churches, this and that. Why don't we send you to Nicaragua? We're trying to set up a church planting system. Maybe you can tell them how to do it and so on. She went to Nicaragua. She set up this planting system, and they're planting multiple churches. And then she came back, and it went so well. They said, you know, how about Costa Rica? So they sent her to Costa Rica, and she set up another system. You know, God has a promotion system that defies embargoes and isolations and jails and anything else. If you're willing to join him, then that's when it will happen.